0: Okay, mic check. One, two, one, two, one, two. Uh, yeah. Let's get it. Okay. So if y'all wanna get crazy, we can get crazy. What? Grape red. Red. Who drank my apple juice? I, 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 I like to get big round falls to my band. Sexual chocolate. Play. What? One game. One on one. what? Your heart. It was like his dip just me. Baby, please. Please. Please, baby, please, baby, 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 please. Yo, you got the juice now, man. And that's the double truth. Rude, rude. What's up, what's up, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Adventures in Black Cinema, your passports to Black film. My name is Desmond Thorne, and I will be your host and your film aficionado for the day. You know, it's interesting that I've been thinking a lot about love recently because it's very much connected to the film that we're going to be talking about today. But I feel like I've also been thinking about love a lot and my personal patterns and the moves I'm gonna make, et cetera, because it's summer 2021, y'all. Like, we are out here, the vibes are lit, we are waxed. we are horny, and we are so fucking horny. Huh? And honestly, I feel like we all deserve it, right? We've all been through a very, very terrible time. We have lost so many people to the wrath of Rona over the past year and a half. It is probably the most collective moment in grief that we've had in such a long time. And, you know, personally, I can say that there are a lot of people that we lost to COVID that wasn't necessarily so directly related to COVID, right? There were people that we lost, including folks in my family, that passed because hospitals were way above capacity and care wanes as that happens. So I think as we look back and reflect, on this past year and a half we also have to include those people that we lost that were related to covid and not directly because of the actual covid 19 corona virus but we all agree that There's at least one motherfucker that Miss Rona should have took with her in her wrath, and that is Mr. Donald J. Trump. She should have took his ass out, and how glorious that would have been. But we all know that Melania Trump made a deal with the devil. She wanted to get rich, and the devil was like, Oh, but you didn't specify how, so I'm about to saddle you up with the worst motherfucker on the planet and make sure that he doesn't die for your ass. So we can thank Melania for that, but... Like I was saying, you know, summer 2021 really does kind of low key feel like the summer of love, right? I mean, people are kind of coming out of this long hibernation quarantine period. And I got to say something I am already so confused with this summer. We have straight men out here wearing short shorts and tank tops and now I don't really know who is who when I'm out and about, it's very confusing and I've also been very confused period on that whole ordeal because I've been crushing on this guy who happens to live downstairs from us in my building and I am whispering this because I am a very loud person and the walls and floors are very thin and I don't want him or his roommates to hear this. But like, I don't even know if he's fucking straight or gay. Like I get vibes sometimes and then sometimes I don't get vibes. I also don't know if he's like white or what. You know, sometimes I feel like it's rude to ask if someone's white, but I feel like I'm in the position to do so, it's like within my rights. But I'm also thinking, would it be messy to hook up with someone who lives downstairs? I don't know, but it's 2021, summer 2021, and the vibes are lit, so let's take some chances. I will keep y'all updated on that situation as it unfolds or folds in on itself. And in terms of relationships and stuff, I think I may have mentioned this at some point, but I've been exploring a little bit with polyamory. I have been... Seeing a guy a little bit who is in a polyamorous relationship with a woman who is a queer woman, so she often sees women outside of their relationship, but... More details on that as we get into this week's film, which fits in perfectly with our theme. So, greetings once more from Fort Greene, Brooklyn. This week's episode is called Adventures in Pleasure and Polyamory, and we are getting into the nitty-gritty of Spike Lee's first film, She's Gotta Have It. And it's also our 40th episode, so that is cause for a little celebration. But before we get into She's Gotta Have It... How about a little trust and believe? Now Welcome to Trust and Believe. So Trust and Believe is a segment that I'll do on the show every once in a while, where I am asking you to literally trust and believe me on a film recommendation that I have for you, a black film recommendation that I have for you. And these films are either independent, they're international, they're smaller films, or perhaps all of the above. And these are films that I really want y'all to get into kind of looking beyond the big things that come out and kind of support the up-and-coming filmmakers and the up-and-coming films that are being created and as ruby d says in the intro to our segment don't lie to me well i am not lying to you you can Trust and Believe. So this week's Trust and Believe is a film called Test Pattern. It was directed by Shatara Michelle Ford. It premiered at the Black Star Film Festival. And you may recall that I had the founder of the Black Star Film Festival on the show when discussing Judas and the Black Messiah, Miss Maori Holmes. And this film won the Lionsgate and Stars Producer Award at the Black Star Film Festival. And... I've said before on the show, particularly when discussing the film Jungle Fever, that I have been in a few interracial relationships before with white men. And this film hits on an aspect of interracial relationships that I don't think I've seen in a lot of films. Basically, to sum that feeling up, is the feeling of the white person having privilege and dealing with certain issues and certain problems in a way that feels kind of overarching and uncomfortable. So this film is about a woman named Renisha, played by Brittany S. Hall, who is in a relationship with a guy named Evan who's played by Will Brill, who if you watch the show The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Will Brill plays Midge's brother. So this film is about Renisha and his relationship and what happens to their relationship when Renisha goes out for a friend's birthday. She gets raped and the aftermath of that. And it also shows you flashbacks to the start of their relationship and how their relationship has cultivated over the years. And the way that... Evan, her, uh, Renisha's boyfriend, reacts to the rape is unexpected and nuanced in a way that I think you understand if you've been in an interracial couple. He doesn't get angry with her or upset at her or anything like that, but he kind of uses his power as a white man in a way that makes you uncomfortable if you are a black person, especially if you've been in that situation. Why is this so important to you? Come on, me. No, seriously, why? Don't we need to figure out what happened to you? So it's actually interesting that when I was watching this film, the copy for the film, when I was watching it through a virtual screening, described it as having aspects of a horror film. And that is not a very overt thing, but it is something that you kind of notice. There is this kind of tension. And Evan, Renisha's boyfriend, kind of does become a monster in some kind of ways. It's really, really great. And interestingly enough, I did watch this with a white man who I am engaged in seeing in the poly way that I was talking about earlier in the opening. And his reaction to it wasn't what I was expecting, which was kind of like an orange flag. Like it wasn't a red flag in that he didn't get it and didn't understand the power dynamics or anything like that. But not wanting or not guiding the conversation in the right way, I think was a bit of a like, hmm, you're down, but are you down with the nuances? Do you understand the feelings and things that are going on in this film? So maybe I'll talk to him about that one day, but that was disappointing. So I would say if you are a black person, watch this film with your white counterpart if you happen to have one and see how they react. Because I think how they react is very important. And if you want to watch this film, which I, again, highly recommend, it is available to rent on Amazon and Apple TV. So check it out. After this little commercial break, we will be back to get into the nitty gritty of She's Gotta Have It. You are here for one reason, one reason only. Yes, She's Gotta Have It, Spike Lee's first film. The first film from Mr. Shelton Jackson Lee was released in 1986. And if you don't know about the film, here's a little summary for you. This film tells the story of Nola Darling, played by Tracy Camilla Johns, who is considered to be a free spirit by everyone around her because she sleeps with many men and she's dating three men at the same time. Those three men are Jamie Overstreet, played by Tommy Redmond Hicks, who is wealthy and seems to mostly have his shit together in some ways. Then we have Greer Childs, who's played by John Canada Terrell, who is a self-obsessed and hot. Oh. Hot, 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 hot model. Except the hair I don't love. And the third man that nola darling is seeing is named mars blackman and he's played by spike lee and mars is young aimless and fun throughout the course of the film we see the ups and downs of nola's relationships with these guys as well as some things that she discovers about herself along the way this film also stars ray dowell who plays opal who is nola's friend who's a lesbian and has a sense that Nola may be bisexual and may want to explore with women, but hasn't. So she tries her best to get her on board on the train. And we also have Juali, who I think I've mentioned before, is Spike Lee's sister. She is great in this very simple performance. I think Joa is very, very good. And she's interestingly also in, I mean, she's in a few of Spike's movies, but she has a very big role in Moe Betta Blues. And I feel like these two movies kind of have something similar in that they are exploring these people who, well, they're similar in some ways. I mean, Mobetta Betta Blues is so much more about Denzel Washington's character's ego and uh, sex as power for him versus Nola's really is a lot tied to self-love and not wanting to give in to what society wants her to be. So they are different, but I could see them working nicely in a double feature together. So we also have Essa Pathet-Merkerson in this film. In her first performance, she plays a therapist that Nola gets to once Nola is gaslit into thinking that she has a sex addiction. I think Greer, I can't remember if it's Greer or Jamie who tells her that, but that's a gaslit. And this is Essa Pathan-Murkison's first role. She's great. She is one of the best actors that we have. She is incredible. And also Spike Lee's father, Bill Lee, is in this film playing Nola's father. Bill Lee also composed the music for this film and it is gorgeous, including a song that is quite well-known, I think, at this point. And also... Spike Lee's brother took the still photographs for the film. The film opens with still photographs and their act breaks with still photographs and it's a really, really cool technique to show the locations, to show the vibes of the neighborhood, to even show Jamie getting on the train one night. It's really great. So this was truly a family affair. The Lees were here to help Spike Make his first feature film after graduating from NYU. So some fun facts about this film. This film was shot in 12 days. 12 days. That is literally insanity. Because this film is a little over an hour and a half. It takes a while to shoot anything. I was shooting a one-minute sketch a couple, no, like a couple weekends ago, and it took a couple hours. There were only a couple angles, but still, you know, setting up and doing everything, it takes a while to make a film. So the fact that this film was made in 12 days is quite astounding, and because of that, there were no retakes. He's shooting on film, and he's shooting with a lot of actors who weren't, well known at the time and didn't have like a ton, ton, ton ton of experience. So the fact that they did this with no retakes too is quite fucking impressive, quite impressive. Fun fact number two: Mars's famous "Please, baby, please, baby, 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 baby please," is actually a mistake. Spike Lee apparently forgot what he was supposed to say after Baby Please, so he just kept repeating it, and it has just become incredibly, incredibly famous, and I love love that line. Uh, I love Mars Blackman, as we will discuss in a minute, and I love learning that it was a mistake because... When you're on a film set, there's so much magic that can happen, and this magic can be impactful, and this magic can come out of error. So, I love that shit. Fun fact number three, and I talked about this on the 40-year-old version episode because Rada Blank, the writer-director of that film, was a writer and producer on the television show version of She's Gotta Have It. So there was a television version that lasted two seasons. It was a Netflix show. It starred DeWanda Wise and Anthony Ramos played Mars Blackman. Uh, It was the first time I saw Anthony Ramos and I fell in love with him. I am still in love with him. Uh, By the time this podcast episode will be out, I will have seen In the Heights, another New York film. And uh, yeah, I'm going to be in love the whole time. So this was a show on Netflix. And essentially what Spike Lee did with the show is kind of expand it. He modernized it. He put it in the current time. He expanded the story, expanded the world. You get to spend more time with Nola's best friend. You get to spend more time with all the dudes. You get into kind of like the guys' backstories. And then also there is more of a relationship that Nola has with the therapist. And her name in the show is Rocaletta Moss. And Rocaletta Moss, (gasps) I think besides Mars, was my absolute favorite character on the show. I think if you've seen the movie... Like the show is a little inconsistent, but I think the first season is worth watching. Just like power through a little bit. And there is also more time with Opal as well. So it's really, really cool to see an expansion of this world and of these characters and also an expansion and a maturity of Spike Lee. I mean, this was pretty recently versus his first film, so I understand him wanting to revisit it. And yeah, it got canceled after the second season. I never watched second season, but this leads me to my first experience with the film is that I actually saw that fucking TV show first. I have, of course had heard so much about this film, this being Spike Lee's first film, my family being very big Spike Lee fans. So this is something that I've been in my zeitgeist forever. And also a part of it is in our Nighthawk pre-show. I'd seen the television show first. I dug it enough for sure to watch the movie. And I also heard the movie is just like really, really great. So I watched it last summer and I fucking... Like, I really loved it in so many ways, and it reminded me so much of the kind of stuff that we're trying to do at this level as filmmakers. It's, like, scrappy, but it's also well taken care of. I just love that combination, and, yeah, I will get into what makes this movie special later before I lose my mind in the vibes in the vibes so yeah one of my favorite things about the TV show actually and why I think the whole first season is worth watching is because the season finale is incredible in terms of the rest of the season it is so 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 good It is largely the Thanksgiving dinner that also happens in the film. But what I love about what happens in the Thanksgiving dinner version in the television show is that all of them end up doing a dance number to pretty much the entirety of Raspberry Beret by Prince. And it's great. They are all awesome. Like, it's not like a janky dance number. They're all fucking busting a move. It is incredible. And it continues to show this love that Spike has for Prince, of course, we all know. And this love that Spike has for music in general. I would say it's worth a watch. And I loved seeing the film. And honestly, seeing the show first, I was able to track and compare and contrast in a really cool way. So maybe if you have not seen the film, watch the show, then watch the film. Uh, One other small thing before we get into some of these themes about the show is that there's something about, Dewanda Wise is a great actor. There's something about the way that they shot it that I think she had to do a lot of ADR, and ADR is hard. So sometimes there's something about the great acting that she's doing on her face that doesn't match up necessarily with what I'm hearing. And I know that's nothing to do with DeWanda's talent because she is so great. And I think it's a lot of ADR. You know, shooting in New York City, sometimes you get a lot of noise. And that can be a very big factor, especially when you're trying to get a lot of exteriors. It can be very noisy. So actors have to record their lines later in a booth while watching playback. It is It is hard to do. Uh, I've done it before. And not to, you know, gas myself, but I was pretty good at it. So let's get into these themes of pleasure and polyamory. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to do a new little segment called... Yep. So for certain movies, I think especially for romantic movies, I want to guess these characters zodiac signs based on their vibes, based on the energy, based on their actions. I am someone who's been into astrology for a minute like before everyone else, not before everyone else, but I don't, it's not a fucking fad. So like if you don't like astrology and if you're not into the Zodiac and you think it's a fad, then like you can skip this section. So I wanted to do this where I I, I kind of thought about the Zodiac signs of the characters in Love Jones. But for this, I thought it was really important to break that down so first of all nola is confirmed in the film to be a taurus they do say her birthday in the film and at first i was kind of thinking she was giving me aquarius vibes because she has this sense of adventure that's really really nice and lovely like the scene where jamie first sees her he's kind of following from a distance he sees her and then, you know, he sees her in this white dress so you can kind of like track her within the crowd of people. And he's just so awestruck by her and she catches onto him and right before he finally catches up to her, she knows, she's turned around and she's like, so you were following me, huh? And there's a kind of fun adventure that comes from her a lot. And her being a Taurus also makes a lot of sense. She's very strong-willed. She's very stubborn in a good way. But she also seems like a person who, when she cuts you off, that's it. That is it. And that is kind of what Tauruses are like. Like, a Taurus will ghost you and not make you think that they're mad at you but that they have actually forgotten you. And uh, that's tough. That's a tough feeling to deal with. Jamie, speaking of Jamie, is 100 million thousand fucking percent a cancer. Jesus Christ, this man just lives in water. He is so immediately head over heels and taken by Nola in a way that only cancers do. I have had so many cancer friends and when they fall for someone, it's 100%. And also, when they are with somebody, like the devotion is next level. So many of my cancer friends have moved in with their partners a little over a year of dating them. And my moon is in cancer, so I understand all of these feelings and all of these vibes. However, the Scorpio sun, that I'm in, really I think restrains me from doing things like that. And it also encourages me to go see my fucking friends every once in a while. Next up, we have Greer, who is such a Leo. Oh my God, not to say that all Leos are self-obsessed, that's not true, it might be, but in different ways. In different ways. A lot of people read self-obsession the way that Greer presents himself. And Greer also may honestly be a Gemini. But Greer is self-obsessed in a way that makes him vain. In a way where he's always looking in the mirror, where he is always concerned about working out and looking his hottest and sounds like a lot of the white gaze. Sounds like a lot of the white gays in June. But I think self-obsession can come in different ways. This is the way that Greer's self-obsession manifests itself into looking fucking hot. And have to say, he is successful even though he's a fucking asshole. But he's totally young. Mars Blackman is harder to pin I think that Mars is either an Aries or a Scorpio. Probably an Aries. I originally was thinking Scorpio just because he's my favorite and I'm a Scorpio and such, but he might be an Aries. He definitely might be an Aries. There's a sexuality that comes from him that I think definitely can be associated with Scorpio, but I think is also can be associated with Aries, honestly. And there is a a quickness about him, and a, a bit of a fire in him. Not like a Sagittarius temper or anything like that. Mm. But yeah, he might be a fucking Aries, because they're also kind of a little all over the place and can be non-committal sometimes. And also sometimes Scorpios and Aries are sexually compatible. So maybe he has like. Aries, sun, Scorpio, moon, it's possible. That booty call gives me a lot of Scorpio vibes. The booty calls, plural I think, or at least the one that happens is such a Scorpio move. And last but not least, we have Opal, who is definitely a Capricorn. You can't tell a Capricorn nothing. And Opal is very much like, you are not about to tell me that you have never wanted to explore with a woman or you don't want to explore with me. And it's not in in a salty way. It's a way that she feels like she can really see Nola in a way that the guys can't, which is absolutely accurate. I think that that is totally real and totally valid. Also, Opal seems to be about her fucking business in the film and in the show, and that's Capricorns. Capricorns are very intelligent at the thing that they do. They know so much about it, and they are about their business. They are about that shit when they get into it. So let's talk a little bit about what makes this film special, and a little bit about the way that the relationships are portrayed. So first of all, there's a lot that makes this movie special. We've already talked about a few of the things that make it special, well, one of the things I want to talk about is the fantastic pairing, match made in heaven, of Spike Lee and Ernest Dickerson. The way that Ernest shot this film is absolutely gorgeous, the black and white is a perfect choice. It gives you the vibes, the mood of the city, the mood of the story. This film is almost presented like a faux documentary and you're just instantly dropped into the world in a really gorgeous way with a mix of the still photographs, from Spike Lee's brother, as well as this collaboration with him and Ernest. They worked together for a very, very, very long time. And Ernest also directed some of his own movies, including Juice, which is a film that you're all familiar with, and a film called Bones, a horror movie starring Snoop Dogg, which I saw at Nighthawk Williamsburg with a friend of mine at a midnight screening. It is a, it is a hoot. It is an absolute fucking hoot. Unintentionally funny. I'm not sure if it was all the laughs were intentional, but it is it is something. It is something else, and Juice is great. But yeah, I love this relationship between them that even you can see with the shooting of the film. To shoot a film in 12 days requires a lot of precision on the actors, but also on the camera. It was shot on film, so there wasn't the same kind of, I'll call them, (laughs) privileges that we have with shooting on digital. It's a different process. I would say it's more difficult, for sure. And that's just talent. So snaps and claps for Ernest Dickerson. Another thing that I think makes this movie special is the way that NOLA is represented. I think when this film came out, thought quite hadn't caught up to what Spike Lee was trying to say with this film in a lot of ways. I think that when I first heard of this movie, I had heard a lot of the women in my family. It was either this or Girl 6 that they didn't really like the representation of the characters and both these films do heavily deal with female sexuality. So I was expecting something a little bit more misogynist, honestly. I think it was uh, a test of the times. I think thought on this movie has changed a lot over time. You know, I understand where the people were coming from in terms of this man exploring a woman's sexuality because this had happened for so long. You know, there was not up to this point an opportunity for a Black woman to make a film at a major scale like this. Well, on an indie scale that became major like this. And we are so used to seeing the Jezebel stereotypes, the over-sexualized Black woman, especially in terms with white people. I mean, Monsters Ball is a very good example of this. I think what makes this different is where Spike was coming from in terms of Nola's character knowing exactly what she wants. Of course, there being some growth that needs to happen. I mean, this is a character growth is always very important for your characters. They can't start grown, they have to get grown, or they have to get on their way to grown by the end. That's just the way that stories work. I think the representation of men in this film is incredibly accurate as a counterpart to how Nola represents herself. Like I said before, as a Taurus, she's very strong-willed. She has a certain Amount of self love that I appreciate that I will talk about in a second. And in contrast to the guys, they are so incredibly ego driven, all three of the guys. And there's this amazing sequence where. Nola is saying, the truth, that all men are dogs. And you see this sequence of all these guys throwing their lines out to people. In my experiences, I found two types of men. The decent ones and the dogs. It seems that men are taught not to be in touch with themselves, with their true feelings. But the things that they do say, weak. You so fine, baby. I drank a tub of your bath water. Congress has just approved me to give you my heat and moisture seeking a mech's missile. I just want Rocky world. Baby, it's gotta be you and me. And it's a combination of flirt lines, booty call lines, cat call lines, and they're all incredibly accurate. So for Spike to have this kind of awareness about men and come from a place of honesty about the way that men are, I think is pretty important and kind of bold for someone to do with their first film to kind of call himself and all of us out, which I think is needed. And that falls into the way that the way the relationships are represented. Like I said, from the guys, there's a lot of ego. There's a lot of them always wanting to know what she's doing with the other guys, what she sees in the other guys, and them kind of wanting to compete for the power of having Nola. It's all about power to them, versus Nola is trying to buck all of these trends that society has set up for her as a black woman in the 80s. And black women now, I think, deal with the same things. And I think all of these relationships are represented realistically. Her relationship with Jamie, this kind of sweetness, this kind of almost like overbearing emotional nature that he has, I think is very, very realistic, including this moment where I was just talking about how this film is in black and white. There is a moment where he is taking her out on her birthday and he is taking her to the park and he has set up a show between these two dancers to dance to the famous song that was written by Bill Lee and that is a section where the film turns into color. There's a girl that I once knew who often had a friend or two she gave them time love wit and rhyme sublime they would come from far away and often gather there all day to show their love and see which one would stay But to her it mattered not for loyalty was not her lot her answer was for not for them to know there she goes on her merry way though she's only queen for a day boy and girl often take this world so you'd better mind what you and that's a great moment for it to happen and at the same time you still do of course appreciate the rest of the film is in black and white and her relationship with Greer this kind of certain thing that you can count on from Greer you can count on the really good physical nature of a relationship with Greer so you have the kind of like emotional, cuddly kind of guy in Jamie, and the sexual, physical shit in Greer. And these are all things, these are both things that you need in a relationship. You need someone who's gonna like cuddle you, and then someone who's going to make just passionate, passionate, unbridled, physical, crazy, crazy, crazy love to you. And in that way, those two things missing From the other, you know, Greer not being very open emotionally, and then Jamie not giving that kind of feverish side to Nola, it becomes clear that. All of these guys kind of represent a whole because Mars is the guy who's funny. He's the life of the party. He brings spontaneity to the game. And this is another element that you want in a partner, or at least that I want in a partner. So these three guys kind of make a whole. You can see what she sees in each of these guys, their pros and their cons. I mean, the thing about Mars that is a con is that he is kind of in a way too spontaneous. He doesn't have his roots laid down anywhere, and that is something that people need, reliability, you know, some kind of stable nature, at least in my opinion, like I was saying. And I also love that this film, in these relationships, I think in a normal narrative that is like this, you want to see her pick a guy. You want to see her be with a guy. You want there to be some lesson rooted in her picking one of these people. Mm. But to me, I mean, even though she kind of, kind of in a way cheeses Jamie at the end, she says that she's not going to see anybody for a while, but the closest one to being picked is Jamie. And I think this kind of thought of needing to choose one person is, again, very old school. I think the way that this film represents polyamory is really quite interesting. And they do kind of fall apart on it in terms of their communication with each other. I said earlier in the show that I have been exploring with polyamory for a little bit, not too, too long but I have been seeing a guy who is in a polyamorous relationship with a woman and his partner, she mostly explores and dates other women outside of their relationship and he sees both genders or all genders. And it's been a very interesting journey kind of working with those things that everyone's working with in this film, right? Working with jealousy, working with ego, I do think it's a bit easier, the fact that he mostly, the fact that his primary relationship is with a woman because I never have beef with that. I think when it comes to seeing other guys, more of that ego just gets in the way and it's so, 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 so silly. But yeah, I mean, having really constant and open communication is very important. Really defining your boundaries and really kind of defining what is to go down in Mm. this relationship with multiple people. I love the Thanksgiving scene in the movie because Mars tries to negotiate certain days with Nola. I think he throws Greer out of the equation. And, you know, he says like, I got it on weekends, which of course reminds everyone of the SZA song, The Weekend." But yeah, I think polyamory is something that is healthy in terms of being able to explore many things. Love is different for a lot of people. I think you can love people in very different ways without even having a primary partner necessarily. And I think that that is ultimately a very good thing for everybody. I think it takes pressure off in some ways. Like I don't feel like I have to be this guy's everything, which is something that a pressure that I can put on myself sometimes And it's just fucking fun. It's really fun that I, whoever I want to be with, hopefully, that I can have a certain relationship with them and not just fuck around with other people, but also explore what it's like to be with other people at the same time. And I think defining my own boundaries around that as well. I think the end of this film is leading to Nola starting to define her own boundaries around herself and around her relationships. I don't think she ever settles down and becomes a monogamous person. That doesn't really seem like her vibe. And I think that that is what she's on her way to, really exploring her boundaries. You know, in the show, she does end up exploring more with Opal, which I think is a possibility. And also, speaking of uh, poly relationships, just going back for one second, a friend of mine is exploring being in a triad, a gay triad. And a triad is a relationship between three people. And this is someone that, they have bought into their long-term relationship, the two of my friends. And it's really interesting kind of seeing the things that come up for them. They're very much in the new stages. It's a different kind of thing than I think that I would do. I think I would see people outside of the relationship rather than bring someone in. But it all depends on your partner. It requires a lot of communication. It requires a lot of patience. And it's interesting to see what that has done for their relationship, the two that were originally together. I think it's really helped them out a lot and really kind of spiced things up and kind of bought them together a lot. And I'm interested to see how they continue to bring in the third party because I think he's a really great guy as well and also deserves some real love as well. So yeah, in terms of the end of the movie, I think Nola is on her way to defining boundaries for herself and for her partners in the future, like I was saying. And something that I love about Nola is the amount of self-love that she has. I think a lot of times relationships, we get really tied up in our self-worth and we get really tied up in this relationship defining your lovability and how much you're worth and how much you're desired, which you have to have so much strength and resilience within yourself to really work through that shit and really get past that shit. Those are very natural feelings. Those are feelings that I think that we all go through. And I love that Nola really, really remains rooted in herself and what she wants. And you can tell that Nola... Loves herself. She feels like she's worth it. Does she have her doubts because she's human? Yes. She has that dream, that nightmare where the three women who are possibly in her imagination seeing Greer, Jamie, and Mars and that are mad at her, like, I understand that, but that's on them, that's on the dudes if they're seeing someone else too and they haven't told their ladies about you, you know? There is a sense that you can tell very much that Nola knows that she is lovable and that is not the issue. I also love that this film dispels the idea that just because she has sex with a lot of men that she has daddy issues. Her dad is really dope. They have a great relationship. And I love that Spike gets rid of that. And again, this is kind of more modern thought than the time usually allowed in film and television. So to make this as a first film and also have it rooted in that Zora Neale Hurston quote from Their Eyes Are Watching God in the beginning, I think Spike did his due diligence in terms of this film. Of course... There is the rape scene that he has expressed a lot of regret about because the rape scene, the result of it, does not take what happened as seriously as it should. And he deeply regrets that as he's gotten more mature... And that's really the only major note that I have for the film, you know? I think in conclusion, I really love this movie. And again, outside of the rape scene that Spike now regrets writing without the gravitas that it needed, it presents a great picture of how men are and operate in the world, and in particular, in NYC. They tend to go unchecked and let their egos lead the way in many relationships. And I appreciate Nola Darling as someone who doesn't have the typical daddy issues shown in narratives and has a sense of self-worth and self-love that is honestly inspirational to me. This is a journey that I am on, learning to love myself more and to recognize my own lovability in this world. So it was a great time for me to be watching this movie. Summer 2021, time for sex and growth and personal achievements. (laughs) For a first-time film made in only 12 days, it's pretty astounding how great this film is. And this film is now available to stream on Netflix. And after this little ad break, we will get into our You Better Act Award. Oh my life I had to fight. So... Welcome to the You bet Act Award. The You bet Act Award, if you don't know, is an award that I give out weekly to an actor who is just giving us life with their performance so we give them life back and we honor them. So this week's You bet Act Award goes to, drumroll please, <laughs> Tiana Paris in Chirac. Chirac was also directed by Spike Lee, was released in 2015, and this is a really dope adaptation of the Greek comedy Lysistrata. Most of the lines in this film are in verse, which works for most of the actors outside of Nick Cannon. And Tiana fucking nails as the lead of the film Lysistrata. She works the verse... She brings gravitas to the role and we watch her character grow with a sense of fascination. There's a scene where she's trying to get the other women on board with a plan that she has, and this is the same thing that happens in Lissa Strata gets the women on either side of these gangs. In this film, it's these this uh, purple gang and this orange gang. The purple gang is led by Nick Cannon, and this orange gang is led by Wesley Snipes. And Estrada's idea is to cut them off from sex so that they can cut the violence. There's a lot of violence happening, and of course, this version takes place in Chicago and you know I've seen Tiana in a few things now and it's clear that she's an extremely versatile actor giving us different flavors in all of her projects you know I thought I might not like this film but the second I saw Tiana and then remember that Angela Bassett was in it too I fell in love This is such a cool style that Spike Lee does in this film and a tough message, which is why I thought I wouldn't like this film, a tough message of gang activity in black neighborhoods. But it was relayed in a very effective way with Tiana leading the charge brilliantly among a huge ensemble cast. And this film is available to stream on Amazon Prime Video. So, in closing, some food for thought, this should be a fun one. Out of the three guys that Nova sees in the film, which one is your personal favorite? Like I said before, my personal favorite is Mars Blackman. I love his humor. Though he's a bit aimless, I think that that's something that people can grow from. I love his vibes, I love his style. He's totally, totally my type in a lot of ways. But what about y'all? Do you think Jamie, Greer, our Mars, or even Opal, is your favorite? Comment on our Instagram and follow us on Instagram at Adventures in Black Cinema. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple or follow us on Spotify if that's how you listen. Thank you so much, per usual, to our team. We have Matt Mozzarella, our audio engineer. We have Cindy Edward, our production assistant. And we have Miss Amanda Seals, our executive producer. And big ups and congrats to Amanda on wrapping season six of Insecure. Woo! Very, very excited to see that. And next week, we are going on down to Texas. We are getting into the nitty gritty of an amazing, lovely hidden gem called Miss Juneteenth, starring Nicole Bahare. If you can find it, rent it on Amazon, rent it on Apple TV, stream it on Canopy before next week. Until then, stay safe, stay black, and stay blessed. Bye. Bye. it's over great